The Mysteries of Watergate, Episode 18, Liddy, Watergate's Unguided Missile. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. I'm John O'Connor, the author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. Throughout the many episodes of The Mysteries of Watergate, we have confirmed solidly proven facts which somehow never made it into the broadly accepted public narrative, exemplified as it was by Post reporting. But we have shown in these past episodes... Everyone who spoke from personal knowledge about the burglary and cover-up had a motive to lie, and as shown, lie they did. These falsehoods were not minor or mere shading of the truth. Rather, they were, to use John Mitchell's memorable phrase uttered during the Senate hearings, quote, palpable, damnable lies, unquote, met by Mitchell to convey an entirely false depiction of the scandal. That's what these witnesses, in our view, did. Many, if not most, public misconceptions could have been clarified had Gordon Liddy chosen to speak up while national attention was riveted on Watergate and these likely liars were forming the narrative. But he chose instead to be what he perceived to be a stand-up guy and rat out no one. So Liddy determined that he would not tell his story until all applicable statutes of limitation had lapsed. Since testimony about Watergate continued into 1974, to which potential criminal exposure attached, the applicable six-year statute of limitations for cover-up liability and conspiracy would not occur until 1980. In 1980, Gordon Liddy published his candid account of Watergate, Will, and was the last of the scandal's main actors to do so. He waited so long not only to ensure that all statutes of limitation, but also his term of probation, had expired. He set out to be brutally honest about both his criminality and his stupidity. The work has generally been acknowledged as the most honest of this genre of Watergate memoirs. The salience of his book comes from his centrality to the scandal. On the one hand, Liddy was a direct eyewitness to both burglary operations, where there had been no other book offering candid first-hand observations of either of them. Of the other burglary team members, McCord wrote, an odd, inscrutable work, a piece of tape that cannot even be called an account. Hunt's book was only a faint at revelation, with little attempts to describe all that actually happened during the night of the burglary. And remember, after Hunt's CIA defense failed, Hunt would have a motive to be unified in his approach to Watergate with his past employer, the CIA, who could probably affect his pension in some form or fashion. On the other end of the operation, its administration, Liddy had direct contact with the political figures alleged to be behind the burglary and the cover-up. Mitchell, Dean, Magruder, Colson, Kleindienst, and Klein. He has well dealt with the financial functionaries such as Maurice Stans and Hugh Sloan of the CRP and Nixon campaign aide Herbert Porter. Liddy also briefly supervised, at least to a limited degree, Donald Segretti, whose dirty tricks Deep Throat thought were a key to understanding one possible context of Watergate. And he also had contact with acknowledged CIA officials, including a number of functionaries who supported Lydian Hunt with disguises, false credentials, charts, weapons, and cameras. Liddy 
was also in the middle of the first awkward cover-up discussions, including his approach, along with White House PR official Herbert Klein, to Attorney General Richard Kleindienst at the Burning Tree Country Club on the late morning of the arrests. The purpose of this visit was to buttonhole Attorney General Kleindienst. He just finished a round of golf. In an unsuccessful effort to enlist him to gain the release of the burglars from custody, telling Kleindienst that this was John Mitchell's request. Not finally, he participated in a number of plumbers' operations and interactions with the original plumbers' team of Young and Crow, and was also part of numerous other shady operations, including the burglary of the Ellsberg psychiatrist, Dr. Lewis Fielding, and his Jack Anderson discussions about assassination with Hunt and CIA poison specialist Edward Gunn. In short, Liddy had some connection to all of the unanswered questions of Watergate, even if he himself has been appropriately cast in the role of an unguided missile as to much of the scandal. While Liddy did earn much grudging public admiration for his stout stand-up refusal to turn on any of his associates, in so doing, he deprived the public and the various Watergate juries of important first-hand information. Dean's sponsorship of the Gemstone Plan and likely the subsequent burglary. Dean's architecture of the cover-up. McCord's treachery during the burglary. Hunt's dealings that revealed his CIA agency. And hints of the true target of the burglary, that is, the lower left desk drawer, which Magruder had strongly emphasized and which meant in Republican parlance looking for oppo dirt that the other side had on you. As a result of his silence, Liddy deprived Nixon and the White House of potentially exculpating or mitigating information, such as the identity of a key potential burglary conspirator, Dean, who was leading the White House over the cliff as a professedly innocent White House counsel. Liddy thus could have warned the White House of facts suggesting, at least to others, that Dean was a quisling protecting himself to the detriment of his clients. Liddy's silence, which unintentionally protected Dean, allowed Dean, according to Kolodny, not only to lead Nixon into the ill-conceived attempt of obstruction using the CIA, but also later allowed Magruder to peddle a false story to the public, suggesting former Attorney General John Mitchell's responsibility for the burglary. Liddy also unintentionally deprived the public of details showing CIA involvement in the White House CRP operations that was deep and wide. The conventional Watergate story, which excluded the centrality of Dean, the targeted desk drawer, and the CIA, was firmly embedded in the conventional narrative by the time that Will was released in 1980, the name of the book being Will. So Liddy's desire during the scandal to help the White House cause actually damaged it in the eyes of history and certainly hampered the public's ability to obtain relevant information. One of the liars most nakedly exposed by Liddy is McCord, especially when paired with our knowledge of Michael Stevens, who you will recall was McCord's bug supplier who could testify to McCord's clear agency credentials and his ordering of bugs to link up to CIA satellite settings. Liddy describes in detail a supposed cutting-edge room bug that could be hidden in furniture in O'Brien's office, as described to Liddy by McCord, which was virtually undetectable and which could still reliably transmit signals. 
The cost of the bug, according to McCord, was $30,000, which Liddy, in his book, verifies he gave to McCord for this purpose, having been convinced by the spook that the bug was state-of-the-art and needed. Liddy tells us of McCord's report after the first burglary about the O'Brien room bug. And McCord told him that it was not transmitting, apparently because it was shielded by concrete and steel. Liddy, of course, was upset that this huge debt in his budget had come to naught. Indeed, Liddy understood that at least one of the tasks to be performed in the second burglary was adjustment of the faultily placed bug. But from McCord's testimony before the Senate, we know that he and others never entered O'Brien's office during that first burglary. He even claimed not to know where O'Brien's office was prior to the second burglary, supposedly tasking Baldwin with so determining during the week of June 12, prior to the second burglary, causing Baldwin to visit and get a walkthrough of the premises. So we know that there was never any entry into O'Brien's office during the first burglary. Furthermore, McCord never claimed in his testimony to have planted a room bug of any kind during the first burglary, much less one in O'Brien's office. What about McCord's story to Liddy that he was to repair the O'Brien room bug during the second burglary? We know this is not true, not only because of McCord's testimony, but because he was caught with a crude and simple room bug or microphone, seemingly to be implanted in a smoke detector in the ceiling in O'Brien's office. Yet, according to Liddy's book, McCord had told him that one of the purposes was to repair a room bug that was already in there. There was no room bug already in there. That's my point here. The FBI, in its intensive sweep of O'Brien's office, found no other room bug, and indeed the presence of the crude smoke detector apparatus appears to be an admission that no prior room bug had been placed. You wouldn't need the device in the smoke detector if you had one already in the room, and all you needed to do was find it and put it somewhere else so it wouldn't be shielded. So intelligent analysis of Liddy's book proves that Liddy was a CIA dupe. The conclusion easily reached was that the target of the first break-in was not O'Brien's office, and from this conclusion, we also infer quite confidently that McCord and the CIA were pursuing a secret agenda hidden from the only team member not part of the CIA. That's Liddy. Liddy, of course, was a necessary one because he had the money, and he was also proof of White House approval, so vital to the CIA project here. This discussion also yields further proof of CIA deception. You may recall our earlier offhanded description of photos the burglars claimed to have taken during the first burglary, which were developed somewhat belatedly and delayed by Rich's photos in Miami via burglar Bernard Barker. The pictures, seemingly met as trophy shots, show letters on DNC stationery pinned to a shag carpet by gloved hands, presumably meant to show the penetration of O'Brien's office by the burglars. But, as we noted, the DNC offices did not feature shag carpeting, while the Howard Johnson rooms of the burglars did have such carpeting. Clearly, the photos were meant to fool Liddy and other White House officials into believing that O'Brien was the true target of the first break-in. 
The stage photos are merely corroborative of the obvious inference that the burglars never intended during the first burglary to enter O'Brien's office, and that both Liddy and Magruder were duped into so thinking. At least Liddy was duped. Whether Magruder knew is a question that is unclear, but certainly Liddy was duped. Another small but nonetheless telling observation of Liddy was of McCord's frequent unexplained absences from the scene in the hours before the burglary while waiting for the DNC offices to clear. There was apparently someone staying late in the office. Turns out it was a young man using the Watts line that allowed calls throughout the United States, often found in government offices or bigger offices. Liddy compared McCord to the fictional radio character Lamont Cranston, the shadow, because he continually slipped away mysteriously. From this remove, we infer strongly that McCord was conferring with his hidden accomplice, Russell. To be sure, to this day, Russell's precise role is unknown as the sixth burglar, perhaps the best guess being as a curator of whatever tawdry fruits the burglars uncovered in Maxiewell's desk drawers. In other words, if they discovered documents that McCord thought were unwise to give to Dean, then Russell would make sure he curated them and got rid of the offending documents. While these discrepancies between Liddy's book and McCord's testimony may seem minor, they are huge in import. They prove, at the very least, that McCord, presumably Hunt, as well, were lying to Liddy about the purpose of the first burglary. Liddy described Magruder's emphatic gesture when, on June 12, he ordered Liddy to re-enter the DNC offices, much to Liddy's chagrin over his decreasing budget for what he deemed an unpromising target. Liddy wrote that Magruder had slammed his palm into the lower left side desk drawer where the Nixonites always kept their oppo dirt on opponents. And he quotes Magruder, quote, we want what they have in there, unquote, he announced to Liddy, who immediately understood that Magruder was asking for the dirt that the Democrats had on the Republicans. This is in the second burglary. Again, while this command does not seem like much at first blush, it is the first time any of the protagonists had admitted that the purpose was other than to fix the O'Brien bug and also take copious pictures of documents. No one had noted in Senate testimony either the oppo dirt focus or the target of desk drawers. Liddy, at the time, thought that the desk drawer was to be that of O'Brien, with no mention to him by Magruder of either Wells or Oliver, and there is no evidence that Liddy, at the time, even knew of Wells or Oliver. It is not clear that Magruder wasn't also deceived, since it appears he had considered O'Brien a target at least at some point. But we do note that Magruder refrained from testifying that the burglary was after oppo dirt in a desk drawer. Since Dean and Magruder were, it appears, coordinating their testimony after turning prosecution witnesses, this omission may have been at Dean's direction, designed to corroborate the testimony of each of them that this was an Oval Office project their mutual get-out-of-jail-free cards. But if there is a primary ox that Liddy gores in his book, it is most assuredly that of Dean. Dean has always professed to be, in essence, a Boy Scout caught in bad company in Watergate. But Liddy described Dean's strenuous efforts to convince him to leave a good White House job to become general counsel of the CRP, a temporary and obscure job. Dean accomplished this by promising Liddy a huge intelligence operation, according to Liddy's account with, quote, half a million for openers, unquote, in Dean's words, 
to be expected for Liddy's covert budget. So by convincing Liddy without, it is now clear, any power over this budget, Dean got a vehicle to fulfill the blind ambition he describes in his bestseller book by the same name. That is, his own intelligence portfolio with which he would rise in White House esteem. Liddy would do anything, and Dean knew that there would be some CRP money likely to be made available for dirty jobs, even if no one else were to know of the particular skullduggery. Liddy's book also puts the lie to Dean's faux-ethical pose that he withdrew from supporting Liddy after Liddy's amended February 4, 1972 presentation to Mitchell. Liddy describes no revulsion by Dean at Liddy's plans, which were scaled down from the first presentation of a week earlier, but rather continued encouragement with the excuse offered by Dean for Mitchell's reluctance being the Attorney General's budgetary concerns. No, Dean was clearly a strong, continuing, covert supporter of Liddy, contrary to all that Dean has said publicly. So what, one may ask, both Dean's recruitment of Liddy and his continued backing now put in focus Dean's seeming fascination with escort services, notably the Happy Hooker Ring in the fall of 1971, and his eye then immediately cast upon DNC headquarters. When we put Dean's fall 1971 investigative work using Caulfield and Nolosowitz into perspective and combine them with Dean's contemporaneous recruitment of Liddy for covert operations at the CRP, We derive both a sense of Dean's centrality in Watergate and also of prostitution as his target. In short, Liddy does much without knowing it to puncture Dean's balloon of hypocrisy. A final grouping of observations by Liddy concerns Hunt and the CIA. Liddy details readily a cooperative agency-wide support for their ventures with disguises, weapons, fake identification, and safe houses supplied on demand. Even the impressive gemstone charts for the January 27, 1972 presentation to Mitchell were professionally prepared by the CIA graphics department. We have earlier discussed General Robert Cushman, the CIA official, his preemptive claim, likely false, that Ehrlichman had asked him for carte blanche, that's Cushman's phrase, assistance from the CIA when hiring Hunt, a claim that never made sense, since Ehrlichman was not intending on supervising Hunt and had no idea what task Hunt would be assigned, nor what help he would need from the CIA. But the death knell for the CIA claims of innocence is Liddy's description of the lunch meeting to which Hunt invited Liddy on March 24, 1972, with supposedly retired CIA poisons doctor Edward Gunn. Even when authoring this book, Liddy assumed that the ensuing discussion of disabling columnist Jack Anderson, or even of assassinating him, this was for Hunt's vaguely described, quote, principle, unquote, Liddy understood that the principal at the time must have been the White House. As we noted at the conclusion of the meeting, Hunt had provided a $100 bill to Gunn, or at least had Liddy provide one, which the ingenuous Liddy thought to be an appropriate spycraft protocol and obeyed Hunt's suggestion. As of the writing of his book, Liddy had no reason to suspect that Hunt's principal was the CIA. If, in fact, it was, this would yet be another nail in the CIA's coffin as a superstitious interloper into White House affairs, silly ventures which, when blown, threw our nation in turmoil. 
So how do we contradict Liddy's assumption, albeit an uninformed one, that Hunt's principal was the White House, presumably via Colson? One tableau of which Liddy was uninformed when publishing book in 1980 is supplied by the brilliant Jim Hogan in his 1984 book, Secret Agenda, based on a trove of documents he uncovered through Freedom of Information Act requests. Hogan describes, as we have in an earlier episode, Operation Mud Hen, involving an intentionally obvious and intimidating surveillance of Jack Anderson in early 1972, not ending until April of 1972. As the reporter was receiving detailed dossiers from William Haddad about the planned break-in and the wiretapping from the DNC, this ominous surveillance began and continued. As noted earlier, the targeting of the DNC in late 1971 and early 1972 belies that this was the brainchild of Mitchell, or even Liddy, the project first surfacing before Liddy even transferred to the CRP or began drawing up gemstone plants. So let's put this in perspective. We know that Dean was casing the DNC in late 1971, and that there were rumors in the Intelligence Street in New York in late 1971 that the Republicans were going to wiretap the DNC. Mitchell supposedly did not suggest Watergate as a target until the March 30, 1972 meeting with Magruder, and Liddy had not even begun his work on Gemstone in late 1971. So the timing here suggests that the idea for the Watergate break-in was hatched somewhere other than in the White House, likely the CIA and Operation Gemstone seems to confirm that. Hogan's detailed description, developed from CIA documents, proves that whatever issues the CIA had with Anderson were not those assigned by the White House. Indeed, it appears from Hogan's lucid analysis that the agency was spying on its own director as CIA agents secretly monitored and overheard Helm's March 17 luncheon with Anderson in the Montpelier Room. To move swiftly to the essence of our point, Mudhen was not a White House operation, and it follows that the discussion with Gunn was for CIA purposes, not for those of the White House. This in turn offers as yet another example of the agency's use of the White House to obtain legal sanction for an otherwise illegal domestic CIA operation, that is, by involving Liddy in the Gunn meeting where assassination and disabling by poisoning was discussed. We have earlier posited that had Watergate wiretapping not been discovered at the time, years later, if uncovered, the CIA would admit involvement proudly and overbroadly as evidence of White House authorization of a broader wiretapping surveillance program involving escort services. This story occurred regarding Mudhen, but it is not clear that the entire the context of Liddy's luncheon meeting was revealed. The Church Committee on Intelligence Abuses did in fact discover potential assassination discussions regarding Anderson in 1975, or at least plans to assassinate or poison the reporter. Hunt, now in 1975, trying to be back in good CIA graces, claimed that Charles Colson had directed him to explore the poisoning or disabling of Anderson. As noted earlier, Anderson and Colson had become genuinely close at the time of Anderson's death in 2005, long after all statutes of limitation had expired. 
Yet when a dying Anderson pleaded to his friend Colson to admit White House sponsorship for his potential poisoning, Colson angrily denied it. The fact that there was an Operation Mud Hen speaks loudly that it was not the White House that wanted to discuss poisoning Anderson. From our point of view, it was easy for Anderson to conclude White House responsibility based on Hunt's 1975 testimony, which likely ignored the full details of Operation Mud Hen offered later by Hogan, and instead concentrated narrowly on the alleged poison plot. Hogan's book, perhaps not read years later by Anderson, provides much-needed context of Mudhead to refute the highly tenuous claims that it was the White House that was sanctioning the disabling of Anderson, not the CIA, that was terribly concerned about something Anderson was going to do and had carried on this operation from January through April of 1972. The Wars of Watergate by Stanley Cutler, one of the finest Watergate books, notes that after Hunt's 1975 testimony, Congress investigated the claim against the White House regarding a planned assassination of Anderson, very briefly having done so in 1976, in Cutler's words, quote, bizarrely so, unquote. We agree with Cutler. Any claim of White House involvement in the planned poisoning of Anderson is absolutely bizarre. More to our point here in these episodes, it is yet another proof of the template for Watergate, the agency seeking seeming White House sanction for its illegal acts. In Watergate, it was the wiretapping of prostitutes. We note parenthetically that this episode inspired the 2010 book by reporter Mark Feldstein, Poisoning the Press, based insipidly on the very sophomoric conclusion that Nixon's troubles stem from his churlish distrust of a vigorous investigatory press. For Feldstein, the book may have won him a tenure as a journalist turned journalism professor at the University of Maryland, but any meta-analysis of his book is that of a press that reports the narrative of what it wishes had occurred and not that of what actually occurred, in contravention, of course, of the press's aspirational version of reality. In other words, poisoning of the press shows that the narrative that the press often puts together, even when contradicted by reality, stays the narrative of the press. To conclude this episode, Liddy's candid account of Watergate and Will when analyzed with all of the facts adduced in this series, adds to the already mountainous proof of duplicitous CIA involvement in Watergate and of a target of documents evidencing the escort referral program being run by the DNC. Now, at the time of the book, Liddy did not come to the conclusions we have here, but as we noted earlier, after reading Silent Coup, he realized that this version we are telling you now is the true version. So Liddy agrees with our version of what happened in Watergate. So to conclude this portion of the mysteries of Watergate, we must ask why, nearly 50 years after Watergate, does the well-educated sectors of the public not yet know of the matters we have discussed in these episodes? Watergate was a scandal causing a tumultuous political upheaval, the only time in our country's history that a president has been removed from office. It has largely accomplished this by aggressive press coverage thought to have been bullseye correct at the time. Were the facts we discussed in these episodes simply unknown to the Washington Post? Were they unknowable? Could they have been found with reasonable diligence? Or more to the point, did the Post know these facts and fail to report them? 
Our democracy, as the Post constantly reminds us, depends upon a free and unfettered press providing much information to the public. Did the Post violate its own pompously assumed duties as a political watchdog? We will explore this question in the future. We have put much before you in these episodes. When, they put, when we put them together in narrative form, in a closing argument or closing thoughts, we will see that these facts yield satisfying solutions to the mysteries of Watergate. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please give me a five-star review on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends. I truly enjoy being here and solving the mysteries of Watergate with you. If you have any questions about what we've discussed, please email me through the contact page of postgatebook.com or send me a tweet to at the John D. O'Connor. We'll meet back here during the next episode for more Mysteries of Watergate.